There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are in no position to be able to defend ourselves in any way whatsoever. Ireland is defenceless. Every time that it happens, we have to talk about how the good men feel. Help us. Without you backing us, putting it on the air and telling the people how important it is, then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818-969696. Extra WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Morning all, 0818-969696. The number to call, text to WhatsApp 083-396-9696. 96. That email is opinion at 96fm.ie. We'll find out in a while why these false widow, noble false widow, call them what you will, spiders, why are they here? Because some of them might have come home from our holidays in Lanzarote in our suitcases. More on that in a little while. But first of all, let me go to Sarah Jane Dennehy. I'll go straight to Sarah Jane to ask you straight away, how is Charlie, Sarah Jane? Good morning. Morning, PJ. How are you? Good. How is he? Charlie is flying it. He's uh, he's super. We were really, really lucky with the reaction that he had to the bites. Um, so if you were tuned into the news last night, you would have seen that he still has the bites there yeah. from a week ago now. Um, but he's not in any pain or discomfort with them, so we're just monitoring them and waiting for them to go down. It was a kind of a frightening discovery, though. He started screaming or something, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So he was just, he got dressed as normal and he was playing for about 45 minutes and he just went apocalyptic. I've never heard him scream like what he was doing. So I took him up and I thought it was just a nappy and I stripped off the trousers and I immediately saw the bites on his leg he had three big bites and his leg was really swollen and inflamed um so I couldn't see what had caused it so I stripped off his top and then just as I did that a big noble false widow just crawled out from behind his ear so gave me the fright of my life did you recognize this or did you know what it was no not at all um so it's just as it came out behind my just put it in a nappy bag um, just because of how upset he was. And I knew he'd probably have to go to the GP. So I wanted to bring it in with me in case I suppose it was the years of watching Steve Irwin growing up that if you're bitten by anything, you bring it in, capture it and bring it in with you. So 
There's a name from the past. Good, good age. Yeah. Good talk, though. And then who who recognized it as the as the as the widow? Um, I sent a picture through to my dad. Uh, my dad was in. He used to kind of monitor diseases, so uh, he immediately got on to um, John, Doctor John Dunbar, and Doctor Michelle Dugan up in NUIG, who were in the Venom Lab up there. Um, so before we'd even kind of got into the GP, we were tied into this uh, subject matter experts and they kind of gave us quite a lot of guidance on what we were looking for and the different symptoms that come with the bites. So how did they sort out Charlie's pain? Because he was obviously in pain. He was, bless him, and he's so small as well. He's only 15 weeks, so there's really only so much they can give them at that age. Um, So he had paracetamol first, that kind of, he was bitten at half past 11 in the morning. That did him through to about half past one. Um, and then from half past one, we really couldn't manage the pain with paracetamol and ibuprofen. So we ended up taking him into hospital, mm. um, into A&E to see if we could get anything stronger. Um, but kind of by the time we were seen by a doctor in there, it was um, 10 o'clock at night. So it was 11 hours after the bite and the venom was kind of wearing off itself anyway. So yeah. a bit more ibuprofen um, and paracetamol and we were we were home by midnight. So mm. he was OK. We were very lucky. Yeah. With him being so small, you'd be terribly worried. They're not particularly dangerous to humans, so we hear, but with him being so small and so helpless, you'd be worried. But Sarah Jane, you would have some experience of of venomous spiders. Your work has taken you to places like Iraq. It has, yeah. It's mad. I mean, I came home to have Charlie, so this scenario is something that we would have expected more to happen to us in Iraq rather than our back garden in Ireland. What what were you doing in Iraq? Or are you allowed to tell me? <laughs> yeah, no, it's no secret. Um, myself and my husband were both working over there um, in relation to all the explosive devices left behind by ISIS. Okay. Um, so my husband is a country manager out there. Uh, he's in charge of the operational side. So that's where the physical manual clearance of all of these, okay. whether it's improvised devices or mortars or small arms um, and then I was running the explosive ordnance risk education program mm. uh, which was essentially going out into the communities and um, teaching them how to kind of live safely until the hazards could be removed. I see. I've, I've, I've a buddy works in that line of work. Um, fellow from Kerry, Mick Trent, Hector Pick actually works in various strange parts of the world. Interesting to come across somebody else who's who's done it. I'm told as well that you worked for the Halo Trust. That was Diana's charity, and of course, it's what 25 years now since she was since she died. Yeah, yeah. I was in um, Cambodia with the Halo Trust for uh, for about six months um, before I, I made the jump over to Iraq to um, join my husband. So that was a super experience. And that was kind of how I ended up getting into humanitarian mine action is the sector that we work in. Um, so the work that the Halo Trust is doing is just phenomenal. And it was a great kind of stepping stone into that world. And it's it's a brilliant place to be. It's really rewarding work. Did you did you meet your husband through work or is he local? Is it? Uh, no, he's local. We actually went to school together. We went to Bandon Grammar, um, so okay. it's a it's an old an old and long one. Um, but yeah, we ended up kind of meeting again when we were twenty four, and that was it. So nearly ten years ago now. And is is Charlie your first? Charlie is yeah, Charlie's number one baby. So. 
Mm. We're learning it all with them. Right. No plans to head back to that strange part of the world again, no? Uh, we do actually. We're going next month. Yeah. <laughs> will Myself he be going with you? He will, and the dog as well. So we're starting to pack up the bags now and really? get the house ready. Right. Yeah. So you, it'll be, with the dog, if the dog is going, it's 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 medium to long term, is it? Yeah, it is. We'll uh, we kind of have the intention of trying to do as much as we can overseas before we need to come back and get Charlie into okay. education. Um, so we'll bring him over, and he's got he's got a big old family over there now who are dying to meet him. So you, you like it to. over there, do you, Savage? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's kind of, I suppose, it'll be our primary home now. We've been over there. I've been there four years. Mark's been there five years. Um, so we have a great network over there and there's a huge support system. What kind of a place is it? I mean, we, we know nothing about it other than what we occasionally see on the television or read in the paper. What's, what's a place like Iraq like? Um, you get really opposite ends of the spectrum with Iraq. So where we'll be living with Charlie is Iraqi Kurdistan, um, which is an autonomous nation and really developed. It's kind of trying to probably be the next Dubai, where it's really coming up in the world, very westernised. Yeah, right. Then you go across the border into federal Iraq, where you're looking at Mosul, Kirkuk, Al-Anbar. You've got a huge amount of destruction still there. They've been quite slow on rebuilding. Um and a huge amount of poverty. Um, the temperatures go from plus 50 to minus 10. So you have kind of people having to deal with really, really difficult living situations as well, plus all of the explosive hazard contamination over there. Yeah, they were the people that had an awful time from from Saddam Hussein back, back along. Uh, yeah, you'd be well used to spiders now, of course, after, after Cork. And just your work is you teach people, is it, Sarah Jane? You teach people how to recognise landmines, is that it? Yeah, so I'd manage um, local national teams, so it would all be taught through Arabic. Um, and oh. we'd just create the content and they'd go out within the communities. And yeah, exactly, they'd just go into schools, refugee camps, and they'd just teach people how to recognise, how to avoid and how to report any explosive hazard that they might come across, really just weird. so they can live a bit more safely, yeah. You speak a bit of Arabic then, do you? Um, I do, a little bit, not as much as I should, but uh, we've got some Arabic lessons lined up now when mm. we when we get back out. Is, is it a language, because I'm just fascinated, It's it's is it a language that you pick up by, through immersion, like you'd pick up, say, French or Spanish or German by being there long enough, or, or do you have to actually have it taught, because they do everything they do everything backwards, don't they? It's all written the, the other way around and everything. Yeah, it is. And the, the alphabet itself is entirely different. Um, so you pick up, you'd pick up, you pick it up by ear. Um, yeah. But uh, the written stuff is you'd need a very dedicated tutor. Um, well, I do anyway. I'm not the not the best at the old written Arabic, but we'll get there. Writing writing the wrong way across a page. I don't think yeah. or, 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 or trying to use a, I can imagine trying to use a computer in Arabic, but it must be fun. Yeah, no, it's uh, we'd be trying to edit documents now as well in Arabic and like our Western computers don't like it at all. all right, listen, safe journey back. Uh, your work out there seems fascinating and extremely noble work with, with, with people who've really been through it. Um, good, good luck to Charlie, good luck to the dog and good luck to Mark and yourself on the way yeah. back. Sarah Jane, thank you for being with me. Thanks a million, PJ. Really appreciate it. Cheers, that's Sarah Jane Dinehy. Uh, her little boy Charlie.
was bitten by one of these false widow spiders. Isn't it amazing? Someone like that hits the headlines for a story about her little boy and then you realise, hang on, there's a whole lot more to this person. That's what I love talking about. I love talking about people's backgrounds like that. It's it's really nice. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Back and I've seen drone footage of Iraq, and it's such a beautiful place. And they talk about, like she said, they talk about being the new Dubai or the next Dubai. I remember being in Lebanon years ago. I went over to do a documentary with the army in nineteen ninety nine, and as you drive down the coast of Lebanon from Beirut down, you can go down as far as the border with Israel to a place called Nakura. You drive up, what a gorgeous, gorgeous coast. It's incredible. You wonder, will we ever get to go on holidays in to beautiful places like that? Let's talk a bit more about this noble false widow spider. Um, joined from the Ryan Institute in NUI Galway by Dr. John Dunbar, who was one of the people that Sarah Jane contacted, or her dad did, uh, when little Charlie was bitten. John, good morning. Good morning. Good to you. Thank you for taking our call. Tell us about this, this thing. Uh, it's an invasive species. It eats 95% of its prey. Is it particularly dangerous to humans, or was, was, was Charlie very lucky? Yeah, so the false widow spiders in Ireland, documented in Ireland about 25 years now, and it has become, in some counties, uh, some of the most uh, common uh, urban spiders. And uh, we're starting to see during that time uh, a rise in uh, bites. Uh, and this is something we're not used to in Ireland because we never really had people complaining of uh, spider bites. Uh, you typically would be insect bites. Um, and we're starting to see... Uh, the range, uh, getting a better idea of the range of symptoms. And typically, uh, symptomology would be uh, mild to moderate, uh, sharp pain, redness, swelling. And uh, in some cases, it could uh, uh, cause the limb to swell, the whole limb to swell up. Mm. Now, in more severe cases, we've had people hospitalized just from the sheer debilitating pain. Uh, Also, we've had people experience uh, body tremors, uh, we had one lady who was sitting on the couch uh, feeding her nine-month-old baby and she felt sharp pain on her hip. She stood up. She found a spider in her clothing and she had immediate, uh, extremely sharp pain radiating all the way down from her from her hip down to her ankle up to her neck and jawline. And then we've had cases of people uh, uh, had bacteria infections uh, as a result of this, in some cases, very severe, uh, hospitalized for a number of months. Wow. Is it the case, though, that a creature like this only bites if they feel trapped or threatened, like by us? I mean, if we sit on one of them or put one of the, if one of them is inside our jacket, if it's trapped, it bites. It's not actually aggressive to humans, is it? No, exactly. So where some insects would seek us out, you know, for, for a blood meal or something like a mosquito, spiders, in fact, do not target people at all. And they only uh, bite when they feel threatened. And that's typically when we accidentally, uh, uh, you know, crush them or, or so on. Uh, for whatever reasons, the, the false widow spiders seem to be regularly finding themselves entangled in our clothing, uh, uh, sometimes bed sheets. And it's only really because we squash them uh, and that they give us a nip just because they feel scared. Right. But they're not at all aggressive. 
Yeah. They're able to gauge, I'm reading about them, they're able to gauge just how much venom to use. They're intelligent creatures for, for how intelligent a spider can be. Yes, indeed. And and this is this is called the, the venom optimization hypothesis. And this is believed to be uh, across the board for probably all venomous animals because venom is metabolically expensive to produce. It's a really precious resource. And if you can imagine... If uh, if you use all your venom in one one chance of catching a meal, we're all familiar about watching uh, documentaries and seeing the lions chasing gazelles or, or zebras, and the, the the animal gets away. They've used up all their energy. Well, if you only have if you like one bullet uh, of venom, and if you use that up, then you're in trouble if your prey gets away. Uh, but also, if if you know if you're being attacked by a predator and you have no venom left. Well, you know, you're in trouble then because you know if you fail to escape predation, then then it's uh, end game. So they have to actually use uh, calculated decisions on how much venom they have left. So they they're aware of how much venom they have left and how much they can use. And what happens is a lot of animals uh, that have been studied with this, they've been observed avoiding larger animals, larger uh, definitely predators, mm. but also even they won't normally tackle. Uh, larger prey when they have used already some of their venom. So if you, and come, only, if you come across one of these lads in the back garden, he's just going to run away from you? Uh, well, most of the time they do because I spend a lot of time uh, searching for these to catch them for, for my uh, venom research. And most of the time it's, it's, it's not impossible to catch them. Like obviously we catch a lot of them, but you have to be really on the ball because once they see you or they're aware you're there, they'll just scatter off. Yeah. Now, they came here, they're native to the Canary Islands and Madeira. One thing I'm thinking, John, is you know, the people going on holidays to Lanzarote and Tenerife and Fuerteventura and all those wonderful places could inadvertently bring these lads home in their rucksacks or their suitcases. Absolutely, because the, the babies are absolutely tiny. You know, most baby spiders are, are really small. And they do, you know, in some cases they, they can balloon. Uh, that's when they're babies, they... they spin a bit of silk into the air and the wind just takes them off you know it's, it's, lots of spiders do this and some of them are even found in the jet stream they, they travel so high but uh, it's believed it's speculative but it's believed that they were uh, being transported in bananas uh, and other fruits uh, this is very plausible uh, but also uh, garden center imports um, but, but very interestingly we've uh, we have a case where it was a guy in uh, Ashbourne, and he imported a truck, uh, sorry, a van, a vintage van from California. And the van had been sitting in California for about 10 years, uh, and then when it was damaged in the fires in 2017, I think it was, it was imported over. And we found uh, black widows, true black widows, oh. and false widows. So we've actually it, we've taken the false widows as well, and we we've studied their genetics, and we're trying to uh, see if they have a different genetic identity to the ones in Ireland, and to see does it match more closely to the ones in California. And this would be an example uh, of a, 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 an invasion event where uh, where it kind of demonstrates that. The, the invasion of the noble false widow spider in Ireland may not have been a single event, that there may have been okay. constant reoccurrences. Over a number of years. You mentioned the, the black widow there. Now, is it be. The, 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 the name is strange. Noble false widow. Yes. So, Before that, this I let is a you common name. That. Oh, yeah. 
So, so well, one thing is the the false widows look very like black widows, and um, the in many parts of the world, uh, you you find false widows uh, very closely uh, to black widows. Uh, I, I remember the first time I arrived in Morocco uh, for a study, uh, we were in uh, one little patch, uh, probably only a couple of hundred square feet, and I was finding false widows. And black widows in the in the same area. So right across the board, uh, their habitats they they share habitats. So a lot of people when they find black widows, they know by the the red hourglass uh, that it's a true black widow. But when they see the other ones, quite often when they're when they're very mature, they go very dark black and they have the same shape and they look like them. But they can tell when they don't have the the red hourglass that they do uh, that they're not true black widows. But quite often they do have a very similar uh, effect when they're yeah. when they're bitten. On the black widow, is he, is he much more dangerous? Well, the the black widow. Uh, Black widow bites like they they bite thousands of people a year, and seventy percent of those cases you don't even need to go to a GP. Uh, in you know a few cases uh, where you do need to attend, they're usually not always that serious, and very rarely do black widows actually kill people. Um, yeah. And lastly, how would recognise the noble fella if if you see a spider in the kitchen, or would he come in? Yeah, would they come into the house? Yeah, occasionally they do. Uh, most people who, uh, who are bitten are actually bitten while they're in bed asleep or resting on the couch, maybe. Uh, so the the false widow seems to uh, get itself all regularly entangled in clothing and bed sheets, and that's typically where people are bitten. Uh, in contrast, people who are typically bitten by black widows are usually out in the fields and so on in the garden. But uh, false widows end up find themselves uh, entangled in clothing, but. They do come into the house sometimes, but they seem to prefer outdoor habitats closely, you know, associated with uh, human habitats like buildings and stuff. Right. And what do they look like, lastly? So you're, they're, you're, they're going to be small, probably a marble size a spider. Uh, and they're going to be typically uh, the big ones, uh, the mature ones, uh, the adult ones are going to be dark in coloration. Uh, they're going to have a distinctive cream stripe uh, running across the front of their abdomen. And uh, sometimes you can see a pattern on the abdomen. It's a, it's a, a kind of like a bright cream, intricate pattern. Sometimes it resembles a skull, actually. And they're they're quite pretty spiders. They you don't sometimes you do, but you don't typically see them running around the way you do other uh, NATO spiders. They typically reside on their webs, and you usually see them uh, in the evening at night time when it gets dark. If if you go into your garden and shine a torch around your garden, you'll probably see a few in the garden on the web hanging upside down. Okay. All right, John. Thank you very much, Dr. John Dunbar from the Ryan Institute in NUI Galway. The false, the noble, I love that, the noble false widow spider has been here for years, uh, been in Ireland, always found mostly behind outside mirrors of cars, says this message. They don't deliberately go indoors and shake your clothes before you bring them in off the line is a word of advice. But most people who are bitten... They're bitten in bed or they're bitten when they're putting their clothes on or sitting down. They won't kill, they generally don't kill people or even make people ill. It's just very painful. Thank you, John. And thank you before that to Sarah Jane Dennehy. We're getting reports of delays in Lizarda, 9.24. We got this in. There's a crash on the Cork side of Lizarda. Diversions in place. Take care on approach. 
and expect delays. The Cork Diary. The Cork Diary is a free service. So if you're a community group, a not-for-profit organisation, or you have a fundraising event you would like mentioned, let us know and we'll tell Cork all about it. Email the details to corkdiary at 96fm.ie. The Cork Diary. With Tusla Fostering. Now seeking foster carers for short and long-term emergency and respite fostering in Cork. See fostering.ie. On Cork's 96FM. Story breaking there from Ballon colleague Paul Byrne of Virgin Media tweeting and we've asked Gar the Press for a statement. Man and woman in their 20s in hospital, says Paul, after being attacked by a group of men who arrived at their home in Inishmore Square, Ballon colleague overnight. It thought one of the gang members was armed with a machete. That sounds like a nasty incident. We've asked Gary the Press for a statement there. 0818 96 96 96. Now, a former jockey has appeared in court in Dublin, accused of tying up a woman with duct tape and knocking her unconscious in an isolated laneway. He has a court connection. His name is Morris Fitzgerald, originally from Abbeyview in Butterfield. He's 29, and he appeared at Dublin District Court. Michael Doyle from the Irish Sun can fill us in. Michael, tell us about this fella. What's the story? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Well, Morris Fitzgerald was brought before Dublin District Court yesterday evening at a special sitting. He's a 29-year-old originally from Cork. And he, and he was uh, charged with four offences relating to an incident in Dublin city centre on Saturday night. He was charged with falsely imprisoning and, and assaulting a woman causing her harm. And he was also charged with two counts of possession of an article relating to a claw hammer and a duct tape at the same location um, on, on the same date. Now, um, Mr Fitzgerald sought bail last night and the Gardaí um, outlined a number of objections to the court. They they told the court about um, what what the case would involve and certainly it seems he travelled up from Cork, or, or this is what the Gardaí say on Saturday, into Dublin city centre after arresting four females online. When he arrived in Dublin he purchased a claw hammer and three rolls of duct tape. And he met one of the women at an isolated laneway in, in the North Dublin city centre and he proceeded to uh, tie her up and he knocked her unconscious. Now a number of witnesses came forward to say they saw a man dragging the, dragging a woman down the slameway. He also, the guardie were called and he also when, when the guardie arrived in the scene he tried to hide the, um, the woman under the car. Now she would later tell guardie that he, he didn't rape her but it was torture. The guardie also said that they had CC. Sorry Gwen. No go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. Um, they, the guard, he said, they had CCTV of the incident and they, and they were prepared to play it to the court. Now, at this point, he said uh, he withdrew his bail application and said he was prepared to stay. He was remanded in custody subsequently. So when's his next appearance, Michael? He's due to appear in court again on Friday at, at Cloverhill District Court by, by video link. He's been remanded under custody until then. At that course, the guardian will probably have more information for us, I would say. All right, all right. Thank you for that. It's a case that's ongoing, so we can't say a whole pile about it. But thank you. Michael Doyle of the Irish Sun, Morris Fitzgerald, originally from Abbeyview, Butterfield, 29 year old former jockey before Dublin District Court last evening, remanded to appear again on Friday. 0818 96 96 96. On the topic of home invasions and disorder, this follows on from the breaking report from Balancholic, I suspect. There's disorder every night in O'Connell Street in Blackpool. It goes on into the early hours of the morning, says this call. Shocking stuff. It was particularly bad overnight and over the weekend just gone. A lot of the people in the area are elderly. They need their sleep. It's very unfair on them. A little further down is accommodation with young mums and babies and they too 
could do without all of this. Mag says, listening to the story about the false widow spider and listening to the doc- doctor from, from the Royal Institute, Dr. Dunbar, about these fellas, and listening to Sarah Jane's story. Mags says, thank God my husband is asleep after his night duty for this part of the show, or he'd be in the absolute horrors. Bear in mind, Mags is married to a big strapping guard, a big lump of a guard, and he'd be petrified. D is on WhatsApp, says, no wonder I have a touch of OCD, PJ. And a fascinating story too about Charlie and his family's adventure and a positive picture of Iraq for a change, which is true. I am almost certain I found one of these fellas last weekend. I just got rid of him and threw him into the ditch. I was cleaning out the barbecue because the weather was so nice. We said we'd have one more lash off the barbecue before the rain comes. And I had to take it out and clean it and polish it up or whatever for the... And as I lifted the lid off, and I have one of these kettle things, as I lifted the lid off, it, there was a spider's web inside under the lid. And my bucko inside in it. And I just brushed him away with the brush as you do. But when I look at the picture this morning of what a false widow looks like, I think he was inside in my barbecue. I could be wrong. Could be wrong. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. There's an awful delay on the learning or the driver's test or the driving test at the moment. Seven months in some places around the country. The National uh, Road Safety Authority released figures under Freedom of Information. Nineteen of the centres up and down the country have waiting lists of over twelve weeks now. Nearly forty six and a half thousand people waiting for their test. Here in Cork, in Toker, there's a 14-week waiting time. 14 weeks, that's what? That's three and a half months waiting time for your test. Shortest in the country is in Kilrush, in County Clare. The longest is in Dublin, in Kilester, where people are waiting 31 weeks. Like, that's seven months. That's seven and a half months. But in Cork, the waiting time for a driving test, 14 weeks at the moment. Not to mind that and the NCT. Did I read over the last few days some people tweeting that they put their car, I mean this is what, the start, well Thursday's the 1st of September people putting their cars in for NCT now to be offered a, an appointment in February. Like, that's incredible. But I want to talk to anyone who's waiting a long time for a drive. Because with a driving test, we're having an NCT but with a driving test so you can't take up a job or you can't drive on your own to school or college until you've got that driving test and passed it. So the long driving tests affect a lot of people. And this time of the year, people are probably moving out of town to go to college or moving up the country to go to a new job. And they can't because they can't get a driving test. 0818 96 96 96. Now to mind the fact that the driving test, and there was a, in the story I'm reading from, here, there was a, a driving instructor from Dublin quoted saying, look, it's ridiculous. It's it's nine to five. But across the summer, you could quite easily have started early in the morning and operated until late in the evening with the long, bright summer days. You could have cleared all the backlog. Also, people have to take a day off work the way the driving test is structured because you have to get it between nine and five. So people would take an option of a test in the evening or the morning or God forbid we'd have some of the poor lads work on Sunday to clear backlogs. Do you know? 
0818 All the stars on one show. This is Dua Lipa. Hi, this is Tiesto. Oh, this is Shane Khan. Hey, this is Becky Hill. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. This is Joel Corey. Hey, I'm Dermot Kennedy. The Hit Mix with Shane Bucks on your radio. Weeknights from 8 on Cork's 96FM. Eugene, come on. I mean, talk about, well, the tone is low anyway, but talk about lowering the tone. Eugene, you know the way you can eat a spider when you're asleep? What would happen if you ate one of them, lads? <laughs> I don't want to think about it, Eugene. But now you've made me think about it. I can't unthink it, Eugene. Actually, on the space rocket, the Artemis that didn't take off yesterday, they're going to try and do it again, I think, Friday. And then there's another opportunity on the 12th of September. They have to wait. Leo Enright was on the radio yesterday talking about this. They have to wait for an alignment of the moon and the earth before they can take this, they can blast this thing into the sky. But Eugene was saying, wouldn't it be ironic if the Artemis launch was delayed until the 12th of September? It would be exactly 60 years to the day that JFK made his famous speech about sending someone to the moon. There you go. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Now back to school. It's well and truly underway, and by Thursday, everybody will be back. Seamus uh, O'Connor is principal of Middleton Girls School, uh, Skullvrija. Uh, formerly, he was the principal of Skullvrija in Crosshaven, and in fact, Seamus, today is the first day in your new job. Good friend of the show. Congratulations. Good morning. Thank- Good morning, PJ. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I, I had the same nerves as every child who's and, and new parent this morning. But look, I'm still here and I'm still alive. All set for all set back to yeah. school. It's a busy few days. It takes it takes ages too, doesn't it? Because there's the dribs and drabs and an hour here and two hours there and all of that. Yeah, it does. I mean, I suppose, um, fortunately for me, I'm lucky to be in a new school here in Middleton in a new community. So getting to know everybody here and so far I've had tremendous support. Um, uh, you know, the, the reality is for every school in the country, they've been opening effectively for the last three weeks to ensure that everything is ready. Um, there were some good habits that obviously over the COVID period that we still like to continue in relation to preparing the classes and, and cleanliness and and even down to how we welcome the parents and, 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 and greet them is, is great. Um, but I suppose it's it's just it's just for me it's the first time in 14 years I'm in a new new place even down to there normally when I'm talking to you PJ I might have a coffee in the hand or whatever but uh, my usual spot for my cup I don't have one yet so I'll have to make one of them so you haven't found completely. the canteen yet is what you're telling not me not yet no I com- completely that, that's the least of my worries completely <laughs> as long as the children are in the right classrooms and the teachers are happy I'll, I'll worry about the canteen then after that if that makes sense what, what kind of things does a school principal have to take into account when well I mean how many how many pupils is a new school how many pupils so we've nearly 400 pupils so today we've uh, over 65 children starting with us from um, their ethnicity would be very varied as well which is lovely um, so I suppose one of the things even there in the last few weeks we've been sending out our messages in a, in a, in a, in a, a large range of different languages just to 
basically ensure that everybody gets the message. I suppose a concern in the past would have been at times, not in this school, but in other schools whereby, um, you know, you'd send out, you know, your, your greeting messages and which door the child goes to and which class teacher and, you know, you'd send out the pictures. But sometimes, you know, one of the things here in Ireland that we weren't great, I was communicating with different languages, but I think now as, as a whole yes, education community, we've absolutely embraced that in the last number of years. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners, when they get a, an email out from the school, they'll, they'll see three or four different languages with it, which is a simple thing. But other things like bus escorts, like here in this school, we have five special classes. So that's um, five buses which wow. travel every morning. Finding bus, bus escorts is quite a difficult thing because... Um, you know, in fairness, them they do a tremendous job, but the, the the pay isn't fantastic, and it's quite an awkward time frame. So, you know, you, you start as a bus escort at half seven, and you finish at half eight, and then you're back into the school at half one to half two. So, there's only a limited number of individuals who are free to do that kind of work. You know, um, so I mean, from my perspective, we have four kind of settings here in the sense that you've your mainstream, you've your infants, you've your SET, and then you've your ASD. So, in essence, for me, you know, it's close to sixty staff. So, even to learn, to be honest, to learn their names is as much of a challenge as it is. To to, to learn the environment, you know. Five special classes. Is that yeah. 30 places, Seamus? Is that five by six? 30 places. Wow. It is, yeah. It's, it's 30 places. And look, we're very privileged that we're able to provide that opportunity. I mean, I won't lie in the sense that it, there's a lot of organisation and preparation that goes into that. And we've children travelling from large distances with the buses. Uh, my predecessor, in fairness, was was organising the buses for the last few weeks. And um, down to the wire, but you see, it's a, it's a condensed time where every school in the country is trying to organise bus routes and it's the same three or four individuals within the department or within bus area that you're yeah. trying to communicate with to organise that. That is no slight on anybody. That's just the way it is. But it's, yeah. you know, as you can understand, it's quite a quite an intense time where you want to ensure that, and particularly, you know, these are children that are quite vulnerable and we're, yeah. we're very conscious of their parents' concerns. Putting them on a bus is a huge trust factor there. So yeah. you have to ensure that they're comfortable. And, and I'll be honest, we didn't get it quite right this morning, but we will over the next few days. It's it's fantastic to see 30 places, though, provided in, in Middleton. We need more of that, Seamus. Uh, we do. In, here in Middleton, um, near all of the schools in Middleton provide places. I'm not too sure of the exact numbers, but the, the area here is very inclusive and most areas are, are trying very hard to get to that level. Um, so look, I'm, I suppose as a school, we're very proud of what we do. And if, you know, if the opportunity arose to open one or two more in the coming years, when with the right planning, with the right resourcing, we would have no problem in doing it. The, the regular school buses, as you know, very much in the headlines because of the fact Correct. that the government yeah. made it free during the summer and some family, I was talking to a man yesterday and the ticket still hasn't arrived for his daughter who's due to start Wednesday. Yeah. Is that happening in your part of the world? So we don't have a bus air en route at the minute, but it's something we are absolutely looking at. But um, in general, I would I would say that that man's story would be very similar to our others. But I, all I can say is from experience previously, no child will be turned down if they if they if they're at the step of a bus. Like the bus drivers will understand for this week in particular that, you know, um, there is there there is a logistical issue around all of these things. And um, the difficulty, PJ, is all these things need to be so organised during the summer, and a lot of people take summer holidays. And you know, if, if an individual or an admin person in bus air and takes two weeks holidays you know in the summer it does Indeed. it delays everything but I, in, in, you can't knock people for that look in an overall context you know I, I couldn't see any child um, being turned away from a bus um, particularly if you know in their local area and you've lo- most of the time it's local bus drivers mm. who have, would have a decent knowledge of the um, uh, of the routes and of the of the people they're bringing don't forget a lot of the routes are, are run by local private bus companies who were subcontracted by bus air and so mm. look it is a concern but in, in fairness the more that we 
we can get on the buses, the better, yeah. because even here now, you know, the log jams in front of every school at this stage is getting bigger and bigger. So yeah. the more that we can utilise, um, uh, you know, buses, it'd be great, you know. You'll be confident it'll all work itself out. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it's just a bit of patience as well. From people. It, won't, it may not work properly the first day or two, but, you know, over the next few days it will, you know. For, for parents and children coming to school, coming back to school, Seamus, any ideas, any tips, I suppose, I hate the word, but tips that you can give to parents, particularly if they're starting in a new school for the first time? Yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that's overlooked by parents, um, they're so keen to get the books and the uniform sorted and so forth. I think the biggest thing is that the children will be very tired for the next two weeks, PJ. Um, it's why the infant classes usually start on a shortened day because it's a new environment, new regime, even down to all summer they're used to, on a simple level, children are used to going to the toilet whenever they need to, whereas now they have to ask. Simple things like that can put a strain on children and just for to have a bit of patience in the evening, they might be a bit angrier than normal, you know, because they're tired and they might take it out on parents. But um, I think the major tip that I always give to parents is just to be patient for the next two weeks, not to worry too much about um, homework and things like that. It's about making sure that they have friends, making sure that they're coming home telling you stories about friends rather than what they learn. Um, and just to ensure that, you know, you can give them the five or ten minutes every evening just to talk to them about school, even to drag it out of them. Because, again, um, one of my... The, the children where where parents show interest in, in their schooling, they're the children that definitely um, love school school more and they, they, they look forward to it every day you know it needs to be part of the day-to-day -day routine in the evenings at home just to have a chat about school and you know bringing school into your house in that way is, is a great way to make sure the children feel confident and happy every day coming in here and uh, as I said even my own daughter PJ is starting today for her first morning mm. I missed it unfortunately yeah. and but uh, so I understand totally and she's actually starting in in uh, Rushbrook in Cove so um, hopefully so I as I said I, I completely get both sides of the fence today and uh, even to the little junior infants who are starting my school I was able to tell them I was as nervous as them this morning. So yeah. it's just uh, for me, it's I'm 23 years in in the job, so it's the first time I've been in this situation. So it's very you, you interesting. I, but with the sound of you, Seamus, you, you clearly love what you do. I think we all do. I think it's a job. It, there's an element of a vocation to teaching because it is quite complex and difficult to work with with teachers. And, and you know, you have to recognize that when you're working with families, you're working with their most precious commodity. And sometimes we have to have conversations with them about that, you know, how their child is getting on. But, you know, things like homework and, and you know, the cost of things in relation to trips and so forth, they're all very emotive discussion points. Yeah. So um, yeah, we're, it's, it's, it's quite a sensitive uh, job in one sense, yeah. but it's something that look we the what i've learned with experience is the more we talk no more than coming on to your show pj and keep talking with you the more we talk as a community as as a school community and as a staff um you know it just makes the job a lot easier and more rewarding and lastly at the very start you, you mentioned covid and some of the stuff that had been learned from from the tough yeah. covid days and you and i talked many times during those tough tough yeah. days thankfully yeah. the worst of it is in the rearview mirror now but yeah. what yeah, what, I, what has the education system do you think learnt from those tough days yeah, I, I think there's there's a, a lot of things that still need to be implemented, but it has a positive. I think the, the systems of, um, it is a lot more organised in how children are dropped and collected from schools every morning. I think that benefits benefits everybody. Um, I think, you know, the communication processes have improved a lot between schools, be they using the seesaw or Aladdin, and I know parents cringe when they hear those names. <laughs> but, some, you know, those things have escalated to a point where they're part of our folklore and our culture now here. And I think just those two points alone, and I suppose here in our school, 
school, we will continue with the hand sanitising in class and we wipe down our desks every evening. So for certain processes like that, we'll continue. And um, look, we, we hope that it, we absolutely hope that it's in the rearview mirror. We never want to see those times again. As I always stress to you, PJ, no teacher wants to close a school or, or mm. wants to work from home at that time because it's far harder. I mean, the the buzz for the job is absolutely working with the children and helping them. Um, and it was very awkward. It was a very awkward time for everyone, including parents. Well, Seamus Canary and Tall, that's a job, Noah. Thank good, you. Good Thank luck. You. Good luck. A good friend of the show starting a new job in Middleton this morning. That's uh, Seamus O'Connor, former principal of School Vida in Crosshaven, now at Middleton Girls School, which is also called School Vida. Seamus O'Connor, uh, looking forward to getting back to school. It's, it's There's some great tweets going around about the things that happen to people on the first day at school. Jennifer on Twitter, here's a great one. Lads, 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 we've no pencil case for the young one starting a school tomorrow. This was put up about 8 o'clock in the evening. We've no pencil case for the young one starting school tomorrow. This is worse than the time I forgot they were going back until we saw people in uniform. You would forget it, wouldn't you? There's always a disaster at school, going back to school, like children going off without the lunch or no pencil case, do you know? But they'll tell you, Mammy, you have no pencil case. What, love? Mammy, you have no... We're in the car, like... <laughs> Any stories like that, we'd love to hear them. Uh, what? Oh, God. <laughs> What? Tell me what. Put that headset on to explain that to me, Fiona. What? What did? Um, what happened to you? Yeah. So last year um, and every year since, um, the school gives out the school books to the children in June before they leave. So Charlie had come home with all of his school books uh, last year, and I totally forgot. I put them away in a safe place so I'd be able to find them, and completely forgot about it. So the first day of school last year, Charlie went off with his bag with the lunchbox and pencil case and no books in it. And he came home that evening and said, Mommy, where's my books? And I said, what books? And he was like, my school books. Everybody in the class had their books. And I was like, oh my God, where are the books? And then I was like, are you sure you got them? And he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I had to tear the house apart to find the books. And eventually I did find them. So... <laughs> <laughs> totally forgot about them. You, you, you have a small you start and they. I mean, make sure you remember the child. Turns them <laughs> off. Oh, yeah. yeah, Nancy is starting big school now in um, on Thursday. So uh, yeah, we'll have lots of tears. I'm sure. I'm you. sure you will, and that'll just be from you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Fee. You've currently matched your previous score of nine out of ten. The question I asked you was Drax and Gamora are characters in what movie franchise? You said Guardians of the Galaxy, which was a guess. Yeah. You've just won yourself two thousand euros. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I don't believe it. Liam! Oh, oh my god. god. I guess. What are you going to do with the money now? Drop it easy. Uh, drop it easy, yeah, no, I don't know. I have to spend it. Another winner, Liam. Go, go, go. With two grand minutes. Listen to play. At 7.40 and 8.40 every day. Casey and Ross in the morning. On Cork's 96 FM. The
two in the morning to get rid of a spider. And I've no contact lenses in at two o'clock in the morning. Can't see the damn thing, let alone get it. 0818 96 96 96. Now, if you've ever had a gift card from a shopping centre, you might have noticed that something happens to them over a period of time. And unfortunately, there's not a whole pile you can do about it. Now, Tom, we're not going to mention the shopping centre in particular. And I'll explain in a minute how another shopping centre, it's happened to them too. Tom, you got a gift card. Good morning. Good morning to you, PJ. How are you doing? Good. What happened? Yeah, I got a gift card. And now it was back in December of uh, uh, 2020. Yes. Okay. And actually, as it so happened, I didn't get to get to use it until what I was hoping to do on last Saturday. And then went to a particular store and the card was declined. And in store, they told me go to to reception and to find out uh, that they could check up on the card with their system. So I went there and only to be told that there was three euro of a balance left on the card. They did tell me that the, the first 12 months was uh, no fees on it. And they said after that, there's fees on it per month. So in the day, it lined up that I had three euro. They have 27 euro out of my pocket. It's straight out of my pocket. It's daylight robbery as far as I'm concerned. And how they're left get away with this and put it under the pretense of it's a kind of a management fee. The card is sitting there. There's no managing in the actual card per se. Well, so I think it's just information this morning. Tom, about your rights with regard to this and, and a gift voucher or gift card, they must be valid for five years. Yes, that, that law came in in 2000, in December 2019. Yes, yes. Now, it happened to another, and this, this made the paper so I can, I can read it. Liffey Valley uh, Shopping Centre up in Dublin came, was, was tackled over this a year or two ago, and what they said was, Liffey Valley doesn't deduct any management fees from a gift card. The management fee is levied by the gift card provider, not the shopping centre. So I'm assuming it's a financial house of some kind that provides the card for the centre and they charge the management fee. But it, you, you think you'd be told about it, wouldn't you, Tom? Well, like now, they, they I would, in fairness to the particular shopping centre, they said that the person who purchased the, the actual card would have been told this, but that was that, that was untrue, right? Because it was from my daughter, bless her, and um, she. I inquired more, and they, that was the first she had heard about it as well. That there was all like, so if it was there for if it was there for hundred euro, and if it was left there, it, it, the, the balance would would be reduced as well, like completely. So if it was there for a longer period of time, yeah, until the whole the money was gone. And these financial institutions seem to think they can do what they want, and the government are letting them do what they want, taking money out of people's pockets. Yeah, no, that's it's it's not fair. Like your daughter bought you this present, and and you you okay, you went to use it in good in good faith, and this mass, vast majority of the value had been taken away. She paid. Oh, yeah, she, I mean, well, if she handed you Tom 
whatever it was, 30 quid, if she handed you 30 quid in cash and you put it into an envelope and put it into your pocket, you could take it out in yes. 10 years, you still have 30 euro. Well, so this is where people should be forewarned about purchasing cards. They're the easy, they're an easy thing to do. There's a nice presentation on them. And, but yet still, you're going to pay dearly for, for, for that service if you don't use it in the, in the set periods of time, even though there's a law there to say um, it, it's supposed to be valued. Use it, lose it, use it, use it or lose it is, is what yeah, it's like. Yeah, that seems to be the thing. And why they're, why they're in, these financial institutions are left to get away with that by any government, right, is criminal. It's absolutely criminal because it's daylight robbery. All right, Tom, thanks, Tom Tatton. Um, yeah, I, so you buy the gift card for a shopping centre and you might buy 50 quid, 50 quid for a shopping centre or a shop or a chain or whatever. For the first year's grant, but after the first year, it's just depreciate month by month by month by month by month. According to Liffey Valley, when they were caught up in it, it's down to the management company that runs the service. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, if you give me 50 euro into my hand and I put it into my wallet and I don't touch it for a year, for two years, for five years, it's still 50 euro. So why should 50 euro cash that you paid for on a card and the card is sitting in my wallet, why should that depreciate if I'm not using it? And what exactly cost, because Liffey Valley said, Liffey Valley said it's a management fee. A fee for what? A fee for what exactly? 0818969696. Can anybody understand that and explain it? And one assumes it's legal because it's a financial transaction and all that. We've had some very good news this morning. I'm delighted to tell you. Uh, the nominations are out for the IMRO Radio Awards, the Oscars of the industry, and whatever. But they give them out in October, and we're really excited to let you know that the Opinion Line has had two nominations for IMRO Awards. We've been nominated for Story of the Year, for our coverage of Owen Akura and we've been nominated for Best Interactive Show so we're delighted with that and overall Cork's 96FM has done extremely well with nine nominations in total we'll see you in Kilkenny lads Can we just talk The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan Call us now 0818 96 96 96 On Cork's 96FM Yeah, geography wasn't really serving me as well as I thought I was saying, oh man I'm thinking of Amman in Jordan I was There is a place in Jordan called Amman I think it might even be the capital of Jordan But Oman Thanks to this uh, WhatsApper at 083 396 96 96. Oman is a country uh, adjoining Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Thank you. Appreciate that. 0818 96 96 96. On energy prices, this is interesting. A couple of these people, look, people are desperately worried about the price of energy and how are we going to afford energy and electric and gas and all of those things going through the winter and are we going to freeze? Are we going to have to decide whether we're going to heat or eat? And a lot of people are genuinely, genuinely worried about that. Carla says, if you go back to the early days of the pandemic, the likes of Russia... We're giving away gas and oil 
because they couldn't burn it off fast enough to keep the pressures safe. Why didn't anybody build up a reserve then? I also notice the price of petrol didn't go down to nothing or down to near nothing. Well, at the start of the pandemic, caller, I remember uh, March stroke April of 2020, you get a litre of diesel for about 107. I seem to remember paying about 107 or 108 for a litre of diesel back at the start of, of the pandemic. And on the subject of Russia and the war and Ukraine and all that, I don't think Sabrina Higgins should have been eaten for saying that compromise is needed. Do you remember this a few weeks ago? Uh, Michael D's Mrs. Uh, Sabrina, or Sabina, rather. She spoke out. Uh, personally, my own view was I don't think she said anything wrong. And there was a whole palaver about where she said it and what she said. And all I don't think she said anything wrong. We're beginning to see the true difficulties caused by this conflict now with the energy crisis and the failed surge by Ukraine forces yesterday. It's not just the leaders who are intransigent. It's the Russians and the Ukraine leaderships too. We need to dial down the rhetoric and encourage compromise. Bear in mind, says this call, even the Allies compromised at the end of World War II. At least in the case of Japan, for example, leaving the Emperor on the throne. And also perhaps in Germany, where only certain types of Nazis were banned from jobs. Yeah, I, I, I take your point. And I took the point that Sabina Higgins was trying to make or making in her own particular way a couple of weeks ago. There's, there's no way this war ends or, or eases without a deal. There will have to be a deal. It's as simple as that. There's not going to be a winner or a loser in this war. There'll have to be a deal. And what that deal involves is way above my pay grade. But there have to be some kind of a deal. 0818 96 96 96. Let's talk about a conference that is coming up uh, in the airport hotel there in the next couple of weeks. It's called Promoting Autistic Autonomy. Joined by Sharon McCarthy of AutismJourneys.ie. Sharon, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Looking through the list of speakers for the event, it's a very broad range and there'll be a lot up for discussion. What is the purpose of the event? I suppose, PJ, um, the reason that we've, we've decided to organise this is that um, that we know that there is a huge level of, um, or a huge lack of support and services available to families and to, to provide uh, to, to different individuals seeking out that kind of support at the moment. I suppose um, the reason that we've organised it is that, first of all, we want to ensure that people are equipped and empowered with um, means to support their autistic young people, um, adults and other family members. Um, and then we also want to ensure that I suppose that autistic individuals themselves, that their needs are being met so that we can ensure best outcomes for those those individuals. Yeah. Who who should attend? Who is it for? So for everybody, for anybody who is supporting an autistic person, for anybody who is um, navigating autism themselves, family members, grandparents, parents and so on. But also the beauty in this is that it is definitely something that different clinicians like speech and language therapists, psychologists, occupational therapists, um, educators and so on can all attend because there is absolutely something for everybody at this conference. What's difficult, and I guess, Sharon, you know, you're a mom yourself of, of, a, of a lad. Absolutely. With 
no two autistic people are the same. And, and that Absolutely. makes it difficult to approach it. There's no generic approach here. Everything has to be tailored towards the individual. Absolutely. So I suppose, PJ, um, I, I suppose I am. I'm a mom actually to multiply identified autistic kiddos. So we navigate that kind of multiple um, kind of support system every single day in our house. Um, and I suppose from my standpoint, I, I, like, I think about kiddos and meeting their needs and so on and so forth. And I suppose this isn't about creating a one type, uh, one type of an environment or a space that every autistic person is going to be, every autistic person's needs are going to be facilitated and this is about like equipping those around the autistic person with different strategies and means with which to individualize and support the autistic person central to their world and so creating accessibility but absolutely vitally to that creating accessibility while keeping that autistic person's voice central to absolutely everything that happens so that individualizing is 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 key to this i suppose when we think about regulation for example and i know pj i'm speaking to a fellow a fellow parent so i suppose when we when we think about regulation when we think about meltdowns and so on and so forth the reality as well you know is that if somebody is is feeling completely overwhelmed from a sensory standpoint for like from We'd say if they're overwhelmed because of all that visual information that they're receiving, um, it it makes sense that that needs to be changed for that person. Mm. Um, by comparison to somebody who becomes overwhelmed because of loud noises, for example. Mm-hmm. But I suppose the 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 center central to this is ensuring that individuals that first of all the people know what to look for, know know we'd say different potential areas of trigger and so on. And then that we provide those strategies for individuals so that they can that, That's a particularly support. fascinating area, Sharon. And I remember when my lad was very small and he, his meltdowns, no, he never had severe ones, to be fair. We were always very lucky, but he would bite and he would kick and he could get yeah. stressed at the slightest thing. And, you know, we. Yeah. I remember one of our very early therapists saying, there is no such thing as an autism, as a, a meltdown without a reason. You could strive oh, to find the reason for years, but there is there is a reason for every single meltdown. And it's finding absolutely. that. Like we found with, 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 with himself, two things in particular. Green neon, which yeah. he hates to this day, and yeah. will sit with his back to it, and rose bushes. Would you believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose when you think about it, PJ, uh, we like we. There's absolutely there's so many different reasons why somebody might become overwhelmed or feel like they can't access the space and so on. And um, but I suppose the reality is is that even though so, like we might seek and seek and seek and feel like we're looking forever, and um, the reality is is that anybody presenting with a kind of a, an overwhelmed response is in fact communicating something to us. Um, and I suppose the the piece in this is that. Keep it like I suppose shifting that mindset and shifting, um, I, I suppose moving away from the idea of uh, like of challenging behaviour in inverted commas. I'm going to say I'm doing the in inverted commas uh, sign here myself the gesture. I suppose, but moving away from that and moving instead toward um, even the term emotional and physical response, because the reality is is that 
when we consider response, we are then looking and we are actually flipping that kind of lens, like considering looking through a different lens and looking to see what might be impacting the individual externally that with, that is, is is actually causing that level of discomfort and overwhelm and dysregulation and so on. It'll come with, without an explanation. Another thing that has changed as well, Sharon, is the way we talk about the autistic person now. The language has changed. We used to say a person with autism because the autism, we used to say, didn't define them. Now we say the autistic person. And I'm still a little uncomfortable with the change. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose uh, I tend to take my lead from autistic people and from the kind of autistic community. I look at um, research, actually, is where I'd be kind of looking most specifically. And recurrent research would indicate that um, about 80% of autistic people would prefer that identity first language, so the terms like autistic, versus 20% of people um, preferring to use the the, the person first language, that I the person with autism. Autism. I suppose I tend to take my lead, but equally, um, for me, definitely, PJ, I tend to take my lead from the person standing in front of me yes. most significantly. So we'd say if you are if you're an autistic person who prefers to, to be referred to as a person with autism, then that's the term that I use. And I suppose, again, it, that's about keeping the person's voice central. I'm also mindful, PJ, that um, for us as parents, that I know that like I'm on this journey a very long time in the same way that you are. Um, and I suppose I'm very mindful that this was introduced to us as something that didn't define the child. Um, absolutely. I suppose what I'm mindful of, though, these days, um, and regardless of language, it, it doesn't matter what language people use once they're respectful, of the person standing in front of them. But I suppose what I'm mindful of um, these days is that unless we take account of the person's autistic neurotype, we're not going to be able to accommodate their needs in the way that they need to be accommodated. Mm. We've got to take take account of the, the person, holistically speaking. Um, I suppose it, it in the same way that we take account of a wheelchair user using a wheelchair in order to move themselves, in order to navigate the world, um, physically speaking, um, we wouldn't we wouldn't attempt to consider that 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 not being something that absolutely makes up part of that person so I suppose in that same way like I suppose that's the space that the the term autistic is coming from equally I suppose if we don't take account of um, I, I suppose of of how the environment and how spaces impact upon an autistic person. If we don't take account of the fact that they're sensory, they're, they're, they're more likely to experience um, sensory processing difficulties, for example, then we're not going to be able to accommodate that individual and so on. I heard a story know? one time, Sharon, a uh, chap told me this. He got a job and he he got a fantastic college degree and he'd got himself a job but he found his job and this is it, it, it all ties in with the autonomy his first job was in what you might call a cube farm so it was this enormous yeah. open plan office with everybody in their own cube yeah. but the nature of the job was you could be in a different cube every day and that oh, didn't geez. sit with him he couldn't do it he could not do it yeah. so he chose his cube he made his cube his home and to be fair to his boss he said to his boss I can't move around every day because I'm going to be spending yeah. the whole morning getting used to the new box. I can't do it. He said, okay, yeah. you're good at your job. You'll always have that cube. And they marked it off yeah. for him. 
but therein lies that accommodation. So I suppose I do I do a lot of work as well, like not only with families, PJ, but with corporates and so on as well, kind of training and looking at intake and onboarding and kind of maintaining and retention of job placement and all that kind of a crap. These seem like such tiny, insignificant accommodations. And yet these these types of accommodation, outlining to the person what to expect for the day, outlining to the person where they're going to be situated, letting the person know that, okay, if you don't feel comfortable talking on the phone, we, I can email, we can email back and forth instead and so on. They're tiny, they seem tiny, but they can make the difference between an individual being set up for success and succeeding or that person failing and focusing, I suppose, losing their kind of sense of self, their sense of self-esteem. Um, I, I suppose we know, PJ, that there is an absolute mental well-being crisis um, currently in the world. Um, and very significantly within the autism or the autistic community, the reality is, is that much of that mental well-being can be navigated and can be almost, I suppose, lack of mental well-being can be sidestepped and can be avoided when we accommodate the person in the right way, be they a child or an adult. Mm. I suppose additionally, when you think about autism and think about our understanding of autism from a societal standpoint, as we've all learned, we all watched Dream Man growing up and we all watched different programs. See, typical now was recently on, um, on, on Netflix and so on. The reality is, is that there is people understand still that many people understand still that autism equates to somebody who is navigating um, intellectual disability yeah. or it, it, they equate it to, to, to children, very very specifically children. And many of our autistic, many of the individuals in the autistic community are falling off a cliff when they, they age out of child services and so on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's this huge, huge need yeah. for supporting autistic young people and adults to be empowered, I suppose, to see themselves from a strengths-focused standpoint, to be able to manage how they feel and to be able to manage their own regulation and so on and so forth, and to let them know that all of that is okay. It's not a big deal yeah. to allow or to support somebody in stimming, in flicking their fingers and flapping yeah. their hands and in tapping on a desk or whatever, if it means that that person can focus, yeah. can learn in school or can be productive at work. That, that person you know? I told you about, his boss just said, okay, look, you're brilliant at your job and exactly. I, I can understand you need that cube. So they didn't even, yeah. ass- they didn't even assign it every day. Yeah, That was his. Yeah. And his and his colleagues just said, okay, fine. Sharon, where can people yeah. get tickets for the event? So the, the, the event at the moment, I suppose just to say, PJ, um, there's a hugely eclectic mix of speakers at the event. We've got what would be considered a multidisciplinary approach. So you're looking at education, psychology, occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, um, a, a, an early an earlier specialist who is also a parent and um, a, per, another um, a person, another group, actually a couple looking at aging and autism and looking at kind of outcomes for speaking versus non-speaking people. Um, I suppose we also have Dr. Luke Bearden, who is a real, real leader in the autism field Mm. at the moment. He focuses on autonomy and so on. He's absolutely amazing as as well, you know. Um, And I suppose just to let people know that this conference will absolutely meet the needs of 
those educators and those clinicians and so on that I've that I've, I've mentioned. But I suppose the goal for me as a parent, first and foremost, and as a professional second, is that um, people are equipped from a family standpoint. Because if we set these children and young people up early, we ensure that their outcomes are improved and that things become so much more um, helpful and that they succeed, I suppose, essentially speaking. Um, From a ticket standpoint, tickets are available on Eventbrite. Um, So what I can do, PJ, is I can send uh, send you on the link and maybe you could pop it up on your page, um, on your social media or whatever. I have it actually, Sharon, but yeah, send it on again anyway. Okay. Thanks. and I suppose people can also, um, if if they so so if people want to, um, look at my social media. So it's Autism Journeys uh, Radio Show is what it is. It's a it's a podcast all centered on all things autism and so on. But if people look at Autism Journeys Radio Show, so my handle on Facebook is Autism FM, so capital A and a capital F, and everything else lowercase. And then um, Autism Journeys Radio Show on Instagram as well. It's at Autism Journeys. Um, I will be regularly sharing the link for that as well, for the, for the event as well on those. Right. Um, but again, I can send on those handles to you as well, okay. PJ. Sharon, a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. The event on at the Cork International Hotel on the 18th of September. That's Sharon McCarthy. 0818969696. John Joe Kerwin got in touch with us by email to opinion at 96fm.ie. I would like to thank two young men who came to my assistance last Friday night the axle broke off my boat trailer at the start of an up ramp in Cork City. We were in a very dangerous position at the start of the up ramp and Billy Kennedy and Peter O'Leary pulled in and offered their assistance to move the trailer to a safer position. While they lifted and walked beside the trailer, we were able to move the vehicle to a safer place on the road. Many thanks for your help, lads. You certainly got us out of danger. Thank you for that, John Joe. And happy to pass that message on. 0818 96 96 96. Now, you'd have seen horrific pictures from Pakistan on your news feed in the last few days. Uh, floods, most catastrophic floods in, in Pakistan. Millions of people affected. But another place with a serious flooding issue over the last few weeks and months and in fact many times in the last number of years is Sudan ongoing crisis there with flooding presumably caused by climate change and there's an aid an ongoing aid program an ongoing humanitarian aid need in, in that part of the world and we have a community association here in Cork believe it or not a Sudanese Community Association and joined by Dr. Mutasim Mohammed uh, to talk a little bit about this and about Sudan and the situation there. Uh, Dr. Mohammed, good morning. Good morning, Bijay. Thank you for having me. Good to speak with you. Tell me about the situation in Sudan at present. We know that Pakistan is the big news story at the moment, but in fact, Sudan's had severe floods repeatedly now for a number of years. Absolutely, you're right. Uh, flood is not new to Sudan. We Sudan has been experiencing floods since the 1940s, but uh, this time, uh, from October to from July to October, this is the rainy season. The peak of the season is between end of August and beginning of September. Mm. So this is the peak of the season, and for the last two weeks, there have been heavy rains affected many parts of Sudan. Mm. 
and it whitewashes away roads and buildings. It does. Ter- I watched some very distressing video footage on Al Jazeera of an entire village just disappeared overnight. Absolutely. The, this is the city of Al Managil. Al Managil is the city in the uh, Al Jazeera state. I can confirm to you hundreds of villages were wiped out by water and thousands are displaced. At least 100 people died yeah. and at least 100 injured. Yes. A, a lot of casualties in properties and animal wells. Yes. Uh, about 100,000 acres of farmland were covered with water, oh. which is threatening the whole agricultural season. Yes. That area is an agricultural area and all the corps are now almost destroyed. People lost everything, everything they have. We really have no idea what it's like uh, here. We get floods and we get damage from floods, but we really have no idea what it's like uh, you know, the, in those parts of the world. Now, there is a Sudanese community association in Cork, Dr. Mohammed. Tell me a little bit about that. The Sudanese Community Association in Cork is a non-profit charity organization established in 2009. The main objective of this organization is to promote and develop the Sudanese community and to encourage the enhancement of our community among other communities, especially the uh, Irish community and other communities for the benefit of all communities and social cohesion. So, uh, but the presence of Sudanese people in Cork uh, goes back to three to four decades. We mm. have good number of doctors working here in Cork University Hospital and other hospitals. So our presence here has been for quite good time in, in Ireland. Okay. And uh, Ireland historically known with having Sudanese doctors working here for quite a good number of years. We have a good agreement yes. between the two countries and we have, our community is growing here in Cork. Do you happen to know how many Sudanese people are in Cork? Two thousand, at least 200. Okay. At least 200, 200 people, yeah. Now you're trying to get some humanitarian aid to your, your native land. How can people help? What are needed? What's needed? What is needed? Almost everything is needed. But there is some urgent needs People are uh, displaced, they have no place. We need tents, we need drinking water, we need food, we need medication. And we are very concerned about the uh, situation for acute uh, outbreak and illnesses that might develop from such situations like cholera and diarrhea. And uh, the need for uh, serums and uh, medication, especially for children and elderly. Mm. Also, people with chronic medical conditions need medication. So, uh, we really need everything to send to our people in Sudan. And are you organizing a shipment or attempting to organize a shipment, doctor? That's a very good question. Uh, We are uh, organizing a fundraising we started last Sunday in the Herling Club here in Blackrock, mm-hmm. and we are trying to uh, collect as many cash as we can. And due to the logistical uh, issues, Sudan now is almost an isolated country after the military coup of General Burhan in sure. 25th of October. So, so access so, is difficult, uh, is it? It's difficult, and that makes things even worse. All the international organizations are not in good harmony with the military regime in Sudan. So the international community is not really extending 
uh, the hands, not because they don't want to, but because of the political situation in Sudan. So we are depending on our people. People from the affected area are donating generously. We are organizing ourselves, the Sudanese people in the diaspora. We are collecting as much money, and we will send it in our own ways to make sure it reaches really the victims. So it's, it's, it really is cash you need rather than stuff, rather than things. We will, we will, we will accept also any, any medication, real medication, okay. tents. Tents, we need tents, medication, sure. and and cash also. And, uh, and you'll organize to get it there through your own ways. Yes, we are. So we, we have good experience. We, we have sent uh, uh, such aid before. As you said in your introduction, there's a lot of floods in that area. We have the Blue Nile, River Nile, uh, the Black, Blue Nile, White Nile, and the Nile itself. So these areas are always uh, threatened by flood. And we have good experience in collecting and organizing these aids to our people in Sudan. I read that the Nile is bulging, as it were. It's very swollen at the moment because of the rainy season. That must worry people. That could get even worse, Doctor. It is. It is getting worse. Uh, Now, uh, in the northern state of Sudan, near Dongola, not far from the borders of Egypt, the, the, the level of the water is really coming very high. And uh, as you said, that could be due to the global warming and also the heavy rain. Also, there's a lot of uh, issues in Sudan. As I said, there was a lot of mistakes happened in the management of one of the dams. The dam, one of the dam gates were opened in, in, in the wrong time. Yeah. So that's why you see that uh, photos you, you saw in Al Jazeera. Yeah. That was mainly due to uh, inexperienced people running the dam. They opened the gate and they couldn't close it. It needed divers to go inside yeah. and to close the gate of the dam. So th- th- that area of El Managil, unfortunately, was completely wiped out due to mismanagement of, of the dam. Cranky. Dr. Mohammed, if somebody wants to help who's listening right now, what they're first place they should contact does the Sudanese Community Association have a Facebook page or a website we 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 have we have created a link we can send it to your program and they can donate through that link or yeah we can send it to you and you can post it kindly and we will urge all the people who can help uh, to help us and through that link is very easy you can donate electronically and and we will receive it and give it to the right people. Okay. Well, we'd like to see if people will help with that. It's an unfortunate situation in your home country. Dr. Mutasim Mohammed here in Cork as a member of the Sudanese Community Association in Cork, of all places. And they've been here for me. He's telling me doctors, Sudanese doctors and Sudanese people have been coming here for over 40 years making their home here and making a huge contribution. Thank you, Doctor. 0818 96 96 96. Derek has three false widow spiders in the house. He sent us a picture and a video. You see, everyone now, after talking about the false, everyone will be looking around at every spider they can see. Thinking, that's a false widow. Oh my God, that's a false widow. Oh my God. Access all areas on Cork's 96 FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael with the latest in Cork Entertainment. Upstart Music Festival brings five of Cork's and Ireland's most exciting new bands to an outdoor stage on Saturday, September 10th in Glanton. Headliners The Love Buzz will be joined by First Class and Coach, Limerick Garage Rock Outfit, Fonda, Headbanging Beach from Cork, 
Cork Grown Little Known and the Clifford's. Access all areas. The Cork Jazz Festival returns this October with lots of amazing shows just announced, including Prince's former backing band New Power Generation, Irish sensation Denise Chyla, Tech Pierce and Jenny Green, with many more across the weekend. For further information, check out GuinnessCorkJazz.com. Access all areas. If you have a gig, exhibition or any entertainment news coming up in the next few weeks, drop us a line here at Access All Areas on AAA at 96FM.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Derek with the three false windows in the house said, it's like what PJ said, if it won't kill me, I won't harm it. All three of them are in the house with over a year and they've never moved from their nest. And they eat all the insects. So when we... Oh, they're living with you in the house, Derek. Oh, you've three pet falls. Yeah, I know. Do you know what? Send them over to me because if a plague... Is it just me or are we plagued with bloody fruit, fruit flies at the moment? We even took all the fruit off the table and put it in the fridge and we still have flipping fruit flies everywhere. Still small little fellas. Little small tiny fellas. Nearly choked myself the other night. I, I drank one with my coffee. Ugh. They're everywhere. But in Derek's house, he's got none because the false widows are eating them. Uh, on the subject of insects, uh, that's the funniest message of the day, Jimmy, and I will read it out because I do see your point. There are loads of wazzies around at the moment. Wazzies who are dying because it's coming to the end of their season and they'll all be dead probably by the end of September. But they're around and many of them are just looking for a place to curl up and die. Circle of life and all that crack. And we're there trying to bait them off. And of course they're going to sting if they're confronted. I'll read that one out afterwards. Do you see this story? I mean, Love Island... We talk about it while it's on, and then it's off, and then it's on again, and then it's off again, and then Laura Whitmore is leaving, and we go, oh, is that really interesting? And whatever. But Tasha and Andrew, she'd know them well. You'd have their phone numbers. Tasha and Andrew have revealed that they have matching tattoos of a rose just under four weeks after they left the villa. So these two, who never saw each other until when they went in, now they've matching tattoos. Like, (laughs) in six months' time, they're going to hate the sight of one another. Or they won't be making any more money out of this. And they'll be looking at the two, what did we do that for? Would you get a matching tattoo with your partner? I have no tattoos. Not at this stage, I don't think I'll be bothering to get any. But would you get a matching tattoo with your partner? Moreover, would you tell the papers you'd done it? Like, no, it would. I don't care what Tasha and Andrew want to do. If they want to knit each other's jumpers, let them do that. But they're running off to the paper to a photographer. We got matching tattoos, so we did. Oh, look at us, we got matching tattoos. Love Island matching tattoos. (laughs) But would you? Would you get a matching tattoo with your partner? Has anybody listening to me actually done it? I promise. I know I'm taking the mickey, but that's what Love Love Island is for, to have the mickey taken out of it and anybody connected to it. But is there anybody listening to me who's done that? Who's got matching tattoos with their partner? 
Anybody? What have you found in your child's mouth? You know, when they're small, morning boys, young lads took a Jay's toilet block out of the loo and was, <laughs> was munching on it for two minutes before we spotted it. Our one went through a ladybird eating phase. I came home and found my husband asleep on the couch and my two and a half year old face down in the cat's litter box. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a second now. If I came home and I saw one of my children with the legs of a daddy long legs yeah. hanging out of their mouth, the child would be on done deal within the hour. <laughs> Gone. Casey and Ross in the morning with no DC Cars Blackpool exclusively Skoda in the city find your next car online at noldc.com open 24-7 the lines are live and we're ready to talk can we just talk Call 0818-969696. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. You never know, do you? You'd never actually know. I've got matching tattoos with my partner. We were in school together since first year. We only got together after we left school. With the tattoos now for nine years, going on ten years. It's a Chinese symbol that means love. Well, I hope it does. <laughs> but there are people out there with matching tattoos. Nice one. And then, wait, PJ, wait until they have matching house bills. This is referring to the two from Love Island. What? Did I say their names were again? They're instantly memorable. See what I mean? Uh, Tasha and Andrew. Wait till they have some matching house bills. That's right. On spiders, I was still getting your spider calls. James Toomey has sent in a picture of him in Australia. There was a, a huntsman spider on the roof of his car and he was driving. The spider is above his head. And they're big things. They're big, nasty things. Thanks, James. Now, Jimmy, Jimmy Horgan this is the comment of the day, Jimmy it really is it, it. do you know what I can't understand says Jimmy, whenever a person starts their comment with, do you know what I can't understand, I always think this this is going to be good, do you know what I can't understand, says Jimmy a poor little end of life wazzy comes into a bar, doing nothing to nobody if anything, he's just looking for a quiet place to lie down and pass away and pop his little clogs. This huge guy spots him. This fellow's 20 stone weight and decides he's going hunting. You can see it, can't you? And he grabs a beer mat. And after many tries, he squashes this terrified little instinct. <laughs> little insect under the beer mat or maybe under his pint glass Jimmy on another occasion yeah and then he jumps up and down and he goes yeah gotcha <laughs> as if says Jimmy as if he's liberated Ukraine <laughs> the poor Wazzy was doing nothing to him but he thinks he's a hero leave them alone if we didn't have insects on our planet we wouldn't exist says Jimmy you're so right Jim and they are annoying, and people are naturally afraid of them. 
But for the most part, if there's a wazzy flying around you at this time of the year, unless you go after him, he's not going to bother you. He's only looking for a place to go and curl up and probably die. Because they are on their way out. They are annoying. They'll come down and sniff your dinner. And they'll fly around your ear. And they are annoying. And the, the, the instinct is to, to strike out and batter them. Well, if you try and batter them, they will sting you. But I love that. We've all seen that fella in the pub. I'll get him now. Whack! Mm. 0818-969696. It's back to school week, as we've been talking about throughout the programme. Back to school. Starting school. Going to crash. Going from primary to secondary. Going off to college. They're all big events in a young person's life. But they're also big events in Mammy's life. Dad too, but Mammy mostly. They're all big events in Mammy's life. And sometimes Mammy reacts in a very strange way. She feels guilty. She feels upset. She feels no one can mind her baby like she can. Which is fine if her baby is four, but if her baby is 24, it's a different thing. But they do. And... Life coach Lillian Courtney has been talking to some of these women about what they're going through. And she posted about it on her Facebook last week that some people are getting very distressed at these times. And she was trying to figure out why we were chatting over the weekend. Lillian, a number of people come to you over the last uh, few days feeling strange about kids going to school Youngsters going to college, even even smallies going to the crash. What have they been telling you? Well, one woman, her child was only starting crash. Another lady, her the teenager who was only twelve, meaning like she's normally their teenagers going into secondary school, and then another mother whose uh, son was actually moving away to college, but moving actually physically and uh, like living there. Yes. So she was in an awful state. And another woman, the child was getting married. Yeah, maybe we could try and explain what's going on, if we can at all. I put it down to a thing called anxiety detachment or detachment anxiety. And my definition of it would be like, say, fear of not returning to a, pl- a person, place or thing. So that if a child is starting crash, like Simple things like saying, oh, my baby's starting school. They're growing up too fast. You know, the house will be empty. And this already set, sets an emotional attachment to going to school or leaving them, do you know? Will they make friends? Will they be in a group? Will they be safe? Will they be bullied? And you go into a protector mode. And I think once people remember that, they have to remember that everyone is going through the same situation. And, you know, you have to change your mindset and which is very important to kind of like, I suppose when Jonathan, my first son, went went to to crash, I was in an awful state. And when he left for college, I was going into his room, PJ, smelling his clothes, throwing myself on the bed, crying. And then when Rebecca and Adam left, I changed my mindset to say I was being very selfish, actually, because it was all about me at the beginning, PJ. It was I'm lonely. I'm this... And then I changed my mindset when Rebecca and Adam left saying, oh my God, isn't this fantastic? Look at the opportunity they're getting. You know, they have new jobs, they can grow and they can become independent. So I think it is 
looking at it that way, do you know? Yeah. And is it that particularly the mammy of, of a smallie, uh, for the first time since that child was born, they're without them now for a few hours in the day. And is it almost, I don't trust anybody to mind them like I do? Yeah, I think it's the protector. It's like the lion and the cub. But I think that a little tip that what things that I did and I and I find that what I spoke to the parents about is a familiar environment. I really believe this is a game changer, PJ, that if you I know that some people might be listening and they might be saying, but they're starting next week or they started last week or whatever. But I really think that I would suggest that before the child starts that you should walk past, drive past the school a few times just to let them know the direction and that there is a way back so that it becomes familiar to them. It programs the mind, doesn't it? Yeah. Also that practice separation. This is vital before they even start to yeah. just not wait until the, the crash to remember and to remember like to be careful, you know, what's what you what you're saying and build the confidence and prepare the separation for the first day. We were talking to a child psychologist on the programme a couple of weeks ago, Lil, and she made a very important point. She said something that parents need to know, mothers in particular, I think, is the kids will be fine. They will be absolutely fine and they'll possibly even have forgotten about you by the time they sit down inside in the classroom. It's very important. And to change your mindset and to know that eventually they will settle in, do you know? And... um. I think it's to be organised as well, to organise everything the night before and to give yourself time. And, you know, another very important thing, BJ, I think it's important to meet, to, to come early if you can, if you're not working, and meet parents at the gate because that's how they do make friends as well. You'll, you'll have play dates and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Form your own little network around the school and through your friendships, the children will make friends. Exactly. And to be uh, to be emotionally prepared for the ups and downs of the day, that it's going to be emotional. But I would, you know, I'd say to the child, you know, you're get, build the confidence. And I'd say to them, oh, my God, you know, look at the place you're getting. You're you're getting, you know, very big and it's going to be exciting and make it exciting for them. And as I said, to be very careful what you're saying in front of them, even when you meet a neighbour. Yes. Oh, Lord, your, your baby is starting school, you know, and, and instead of saying, I know, isn't it so sad? Saying, isn't it fantastic? You know, she's a big girl, big boy now. And I think that's very, very important. Because if you feel negative and you express that negativity around the child, they soak it up like a sponge. They really, really do. And I think it's very, like, to regulate, regulate emotions and have the emotional state as a happy, exciting, and a new venture. The question arises, why do you think, and I know you're not a psychologist or a coach, but why do you think people feel that way anyway? I think it's going back to the gatherer-hunter time when we, we were there, and, you know, in your in your brain, there's a thing called your, your amygdala, and it's your, you know, fight or flight, but also fear. And I think that, you're there protect you're you're actually activating that too much because you fear something is going to actually happen it's built into us it's it's actually yeah built our amygdala and some people who stress you know you've some people who who stress too much they're activating that amygdala 
And it's a vicious circle. The more stressed you get, the more reaction in your brain, the more stressed you get. You're like a hamster in a, in a wheel. We're so protective when you have your child. Nobody else, some, some parents. Then again, PJ, I know some parents that would be delighted to give their children, say, go on into school. I'd be delighted to get rid of you and all this. As I said, if I was the one dropping the child off for the first day in school, I'd be looking for the nearest full Irish breakfast and a paper. Are dads different than mothers, like the maternal thing and the paternal thing? I think so. Come back to me on that. Come back to me, Lil, on that person you were talking to. And obviously we're not going to identify anybody whose youngster was getting married and they were feeling this way. Yeah, I actually, um, it's so, because it's, it's the person is living and it's the same, I suppose, as getting married and as, as going away to college as well, living, like moving out of the house. Do you know the, the, the actual detachment? And I suppose in another sense is that there's another woman taking over what she did. And it's so strange. I was talking about this yesterday. Now that you bring this up, um, one of the girls that I was talking to, the mother still demands that she washes his, the guy's clothes and irons and washes them. The, the mother wants to continue doing all that, even though he's, he's married. I, I'm sure many women will testify to the fact that you, you kind of marry him and his mother if, you, if you're not very careful. Yeah. If you don't like the mother, you might as well forget about it. A little tip for anybody. If you don't like the mother, just <laughs> give up. <laughs> That's a whole discussion in itself. Lil, great talking to you and thanks very much. So lovely, PJ. Have a lovely day. Bye. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96 FM. The Cork Diary is a free service. So if you're a community group, a not-for-profit organisation, or you have a fundraising event you would like mentioned, let us know and we'll tell Cork all about it. Email the details to corkdiary at 96fm.ie. The Cork Diary. With Tusla Fostering. Now seeking foster carers for short and long-term emergency and respite fostering in Cork. See fostering.ie. On Cork's 96FM. Next year will mark a very significant anniversary for the gay community because it was 30 years ago, next year, that it was finally uh, declared not a crime to be gay. It was a crime, an actual crime to be gay in Ireland up to 19, up to 30 years ago. And I think part of Commemorating that is is the thinking behind an event called Before the Rainbow and After. It is uh, experiences of older and more marginalised gay men from Cork. It's a new arts project which has been launched in Cork. And we'll talk to one of the participants shortly who's been on the show with me before. And I look forward to speaking with him again. But let's go first to uh, Ailsa Spindler, who is the coordinator of the project. Is it, Ailsa, is, is it uh, a coincidence or is it intentional that, that, that the project is launched with the anniversary coming up next year? Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it, I wouldn't say it was a coincidence. It wasn't a main driver, but we are very aware that some of our older service users here at Gay Project grew up through that period when, as you say, being gay was, was a crime in Ireland. And 
that meant, obviously, at the time, they had to modify their behaviours, but this has lasting effects. And many of these older men didn't have the opportunity to form proper, long-lasting relationships when they were young. And that has led to isolation and also feelings of, you know, being unworthy um, that, that persist up to the present day. So we were looking at ways of engaging with that group and giving them a voice. And we came up with an art project, which I'm delighted to say has been a fantastic success. Mm. You asked them to come together and express themselves through, through art, to any kind of art, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, we engaged the services of a very, very experienced community artist, Mark Storer, who has worked in court before, so he knows uh, the, the community. And he himself is a, an older gay man. And so he facilitated the participants. He didn't in any way tell them what they should do. It was very much what they felt was appropriate to express their, their, their own thoughts about their lives, about their, um, their, their, their sort of uh, sexuality, their relationships, their hopes for the future as well, because many of them are looking to still have a good, lasting relationship. Mm. Where, where can the art exhibition be seen? Well, we launched it last night as a gallery, but essentially the, the output is uh, a variety of different media. So there's uh, a 20-minute film and there's a book. Now, both of those can be seen on the Gay Project website, so that's gayproject.ie. Uh, there's a, um, an online version of the book, we're not selling the book widely. It was very much intended to be um, for the participants, but we will be making it available through selected outlets. And if there's a huge demand, we could even have a, a print run to, for public consumption. Okay. We'll also be showing some of the other aspects of the artwork, because there are collages and all sorts of things, at, uh, as part of the, the Culture Night celebrations uh, in September here in Cork. So there are going to be lots, of, yeah. There are going to be lots of opportunities for people to see this, and we will be rolling it out wherever we can in the future. Because this is this is a story for the ages. You know, these are important points that these men have made. They've been very brave, very courageous in coming out and and showing their vulnerability. And we want people to understand their stories. Okay, Elsa, I'll leave it there with you. Thank you very much. That's Elsa Spindler, project coordinator of this uh, project before the rainbow and after. Uh, let me talk to Will Kennedy, who's one of the participants. And Will, you and I have spoken before on the opinion line a, a number of times. Um, and I, I spoke about that, you know, 30 years ago, I had friends and colleagues who, who were gay. And I felt so sorry for them because they had to hide it or they had to, you know, consummate their affections, as it were, in secret and hope that no one caught them. And you can remember that time because, well, you lived through it. It must have been a terrible way to have to live, Will. Good morning. Morning. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, as you say, like, it's coming up on the anniversary next year, the 30th anniversary. And I remember in 1993, I was actually in the army. And, yeah, I think everybody knew I was gay. But in 93, I was actually able to officially come out. Um, when I was 
serving in the army and uh, it changed my life like that. Uh, all that hiding, all that secrecy and everything was gone. Like making up stories if you had been out with the lads in the army and the girl you got off or whatever, just trying to keep things. 1993 changed everything, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to explain, isn't it, to people who weren't around at the time, to younger people, that it was an actual crime. Actual crime. Yeah, I think it's very hard. I mean, I'm I'm 65, so uh, people be always on to me. Like when I was talking to you before about HIV and everything, they have been talking about the 80s, and I tried to stress to people I grew up in the 60s and the 70s when there was nothing in Ireland about like you know like there are support groups now. There's everything. You literally were on your own, and all I knew about my homosexuality, my introduction to it, was that the church I was intrinsically evil. Medical profession, I had a medical illness and I was uh, a criminal, like it was a criminal offence, like if you were caught doing anything. So that was my introduction to my sexuality all through my teenage years and everything like and having absolutely, I think it's hard to describe to a younger person, no one and nowhere to talk. Um, You were in isolation, you were in loneliness. I mean, people got married, people committed suicide, people left the country. Mm Uh, you can't describe that, like, in, in even if you try to explain mm. to people uh, the, the isolation, the loneliness. I had, I had a school friend uh, who left, left for the UK, um, mm. has, has passed away now since, unfortunately. But, but I remember he left and I remember meeting him many years later. Uh, and he said, I can't, I couldn't live here when it was a crime to be me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people just don't realise, like, we were completely, not just engaged, we were ruled by the church. So everything like that, <laughs> we did or tried to do, like, it was just a society. I think we were all conditioned, everybody straight, gay, whatever, we were conditioned to just, like, sex and sexuality was not something we ever spoke about or ever talked about. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to describe that to younger people who are a bit more, are much more open today and everything. That You were living in a society where, you know, sex was something never mentioned <laughs> yeah, yeah. but that's why I enjoyed this project uh, I really did because like um, just to read you a tiny bit the men who have participated in Before the Rainbow and After have demonstrated their strength their courage and their resolves to show how it feels to be an older gay man living in Ireland in 2022 the result is a celebration of their lives which acknowledges the struggles they face growing up in a society which demonised and vilified them and shows, more importantly, how they have flourished today, like, you know. I mean, that was the point behind this project, because we've done the stories on AIDS, the bad times, and we didn't want this to be like um, another, oh, how bad things were, how terrible. They were. This is more about how we were victims back then, then became survivors, and now we're thrivers. Mm. You know, like, you overcame all this, and... I would recommend anybody really to look it up online at Santa Gay Project's website because the 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 images are powerful in this book and the yeah. film. They, I had no idea what we were getting involved with. Mark, the artist, is <laughs> what may be saying. That's one of the most eccentric, beautiful people I've ever come across. Um, he just hit us up with the day he came in the first meeting. This is going to be, and we're going to do this, and we might do this, but there was nothing definite. And it all came out of conversations we had. We used to meet every Sunday. Ideas that were thrown out there. And there was the film, there was the book, there was... But I, I, I said I had years of therapy because of my situation. Yeah. And this was better than any therapy. Yeah. It yeah. just opened up, like, uh, everything, like, you know. And 
I, I want to see this as a celebration before the rainbow and after. And if it would lead into something and some other kind of project for next year, I would love to do something to celebrate the decriminalisation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of people would. I mean, at the time, I would have been working in radio, working in entertainment, and you know, radio and and the entertainment industry were safe spaces. I think anyway, <clears throat> or as close you get to for a, spa- a safe space at that time. Um, but I, I do remember how difficult it was for people. Uh, Councillor John Maher has contacted us. He had the pleasure of deputising for the Lord Mayor at the launch. It was a beautiful mm-hmm. event. Thanks to the contributors for their honesty, bravery and courage. I want to thank them for making it somewhat easier to be gay in 2022. They've created symbols in the book, art and the film that reminds people of where we've come from, celebrate what's achieved and prepare us for the challenges ahead. There was certainly a rainbow shining after last night's event, well done to all involved. A man that I, <clears throat> I thought of when I read about it, uh, Will, I, I assume you knew the, the late great Dave Roach, he was a dear friend. Oh yeah, Dave and I, we both grew up here on the Dwayne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. Dave well, yeah. How happy would he have been to, to see projects uh, like this and to be looking forward to next year. Will, thank you very much. Will Kennedy, a part of that uh, Before the Rainbow and After project and I'm, I'm sure something will be done next year to mark the 30 years. I sincerely hope it will. And uh, before that, Ilsa Spindler, project coordinator of the Gay Project. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. On Quartz 96 FM. Now, Joanne, you tweeted, we, we spoke before about Bob and, and everything. Uh, that's quite an upsetting photograph that you tweeted. Describe what happened for me. Thanks for having me on again, PJ, uh, to, to highlight the, the crisis in the disability services. Um, what's happened, basically, I mean, you, you know from the previously talking to me, like, and, um, and it was, you know, I, I tweeted about this and everything, and it was on the papers as well, um, that, like, Bob had a lot of difficulty. His autism and moderate learning disability, and he had a lot of difficulty adjusting to lockdowns. Um, so he 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 was kind of going, he was doing relatively okay, but, it, you know, he was struggling through it. And it was actually really once we started to come out yeah. of lockdown, and he had another major adjustment to make. Joanne, do you know what I want to try to do? Sorry, no, I want to talk to you for a minute. Can we maybe try and tidy up that phone line a little bit? We'll try and get... Okay. Right, get it back yeah. onto a regular line, I'd say, Fiona, because that's a very messy line. We'll see if we can clean it up uh, a little bit. Just a couple of things to clear up here while we do that. Minister Coveney uh, is meeting EU foreign affairs ministers and is talking about Ireland increasing its funding for the war. So Ireland is going to be funding weapons and training missions while we can barely fund what we need here. Also, why are we talking about funding the war when there's no talk of peace or anything like that. It doesn't make sense. And it's making my blood boil right now. Yeah, I I did see Simon Coveney talking about that earlier on. I wasn't concentrating too much on what he was saying. I was preparing for the programme this morning. But there is a thing. If we're going to put more money, and just, just for the second now before I go to Joanne, we're going to throw more money into supporting Ukraine or supporting any kind of a war effort. I'm sorry, I I have to draw a line here. Putting money, taxpayers' money, into the war effort 
we've done enough, we've done our bit, we're a small, tiny country on the end of Europe, well, on the edge of Europe, we've done our bit, and I'm about to talk to a woman who can't get a service for her son, and I'm talking to people who can't get classes and can't get places and can't get wheelchairs and can't get simple services and can't get therapists and just can't get stuff. And here's another one coming up now. And Simon Coveley's going spending more money on somebody else's war. That doesn't sit right with me. Uh, those are the kind of views that can get you into trouble these days, but I don't give a toss. It doesn't sit right with me. Joanne? Thanks for having me on again, PJ, and for, for being so patient there with Not the phone line. Not at all. That's a very upsetting photograph you posted. It was... I'm actually in delayed shock. It was dreadfully upsetting, and that's why I, you know, I, I posted it too. So, because I'm out of options, really. And um, we, like, as you know, you we've been talking before about uh, the disability services, and our son, Bob, has autism and moderate learning disability. Now, there is there is a vast difference between where Bob was at before the lockdowns and after the lockdowns. He we'd done over 130 park runs. He was at, at at athletics three times a week, and he'd be taking he'd be get be up in the morning to go. Yeah, he was flying it, loving it. Now he wouldn't be very communicative, but he would be verbal. Yes, but he was in a very happy place. Um, like to, to, like we'd even run now in England and France, wow. like well able, you know, within the confines of the sort of diagnosis of autism. Sure. You know that sure. has limits. Absolutely, but. The lockdowns, all sure all his services were cut, hit him very hard. He spent like three or four weeks sitting on the sofa, following me around, going, when is COVID over? When is COVID over? You know, and he really, like those messages, the repeat messages in the shops, like they did his head in as well and the constant bombardment on advertising and everything. So to cut a long story short, anyway, he was coping, but, you know, suffering. Um, throughout those that phase. Then when we got back into school and everything and things started to open up, mm. it was more changes again that really hit hard. And of course, we discovered in that time like that our services had changed. We have the progression of disability model oh, now. God. Yeah. So what happened like was that the, it was, we had no services and even his records weren't transferred from Brothers of Charity to en- Enable, who are our service providers now. So all of that had to be chased up by me. Mm. So then you're getting caught up in the whole dis- services thing. So anyway, as things were progressing, um, he clearly wasn't coping with the fact that there was now more changes again because, you know, things were opening up and it was like a delayed reaction. Yeah. So... He displayed some sort of kind of self-harming behaviour, which was banging his head and causing blood. So we got the referral to Cairns. In fairness, it was quick. We did get a referral, and I found they were very good when they came, visited him in the school and the whole lot. And I have no crimes with that. It seemed to be isolated behaviour at that stage. We were all hoping it was. We were all hoping that with behavioural interventions and the whole lot, that we would see uh, if relieved and that he would, you know, have a return to normal. And we got a few good months and then the next thing, things started to turn again and he 
I suppose he became, like, he didn't go back to his original activities of running or park run or anything like that, which was a major turnaround for him. Yeah. He cut well, those dead. Was it that he, he couldn't or he did just didn't have any interest left? I don't think he had the interest. Right. But, he, you know, again, like, it's hard to understand when somebody isn't really communicating. Um, but it was a terrible social loss to him as well as a, as well as, you know, a mental health loss and, yeah. and uh, an exercise loss. So um, the self-harming then, it became a little bit more increased, but we still thought that we could kind of use the behavioural interventions and so on and so forth. And we did have behavioural interventions from Enable and psycho- psychology as well. Uh, some, um, But uh, come the summer holidays, June, the end of June, started July then this year, it escalated. And we're talking about a person who is six foot three and nearly 20 stone trying to crash their way through windows. You know, huge force. So what happens then is that you you have no option then but to call emergency services, which we did, thinking that, as Cams had told us, that there is an emergency route to Cams through the emergency services and a So I've had the ambulance, uh, I've had the guards out, a guardy ambulance and a doctor from CUH out um, over the course of June. I've had them out three times. And I can guarantee you there is no course into CAMS through that. So that's not operating or not working, or not true, one or the other. When was the last time he saw somebody in cams, Joanne? Uh, this time last year. And he's putting his head through the door, through, through windows, yeah. trying to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, so it was succeeded in that photo. Yeah. That's reinforced glass, by the way. In the front door. Yeah. And may I ask, is he, you say he communicates, is he verbal enough to get it across to you? What's going on for him? Not really. Like, he can just burst out crying at times like that's what he did not last week. You know, there, I, I don't know, really. This, like, he's 17 years old, and I thought I knew him. And I thought, you know, and the same with my husband. Like, we thought, excuse me, that we knew his his moods and that we could interpret them. But this is beyond us. And I'm like, I have to say, like, we're good at this. Like, this is, you know, we have 17 years experience yes. observing him. We're we're professional at this. And this is beyond us. Um, and so we, you know, we have to reach out to the services. And, you know, it, you would expect, like, in a functioning country of we, what we think or we're told is first world, that you will have a service to reach out to. But the reality is that the only service that is there for us now uh, in emergency situations is the Gardaí, the ambulance, and a doctor out from CUH. That is our service. None of whom, with the best will in the world, can, Are, get, in, can yeah. get inside his head and figure out what's no, going on. No, no. And I, I would have to give a shout-out to the Gardaí now and the ambulance crews and the doctors. They were amazing. Absolutely amazing. Garda Shadid from Balancholic and John and Khan, I think they're from Balancholic as well. And the ambulance crews that came out and the doctors who came out. Like, amazing people. But like, we, our situation tied them up 
for two hours each time over the course of June. Like, that's a lot of emergency services tied up in our situation. And surely, be to goodness, that should give somebody in the HSE pause for reflection. We're not the only people that this is happening to. No. That must give people pause for reflection as to what is going on. We need a review of what is going on in Cairns. We certainly need a review of the progression of disability services. I mean, that that is not a progression. It is a regression. We have 15 or so years of planning for that. And I was at some of those plans. I saw where you, PJ, and like the bitterness and the vitriol at those meetings that were levelled at anybody who raised a question Mm -hmm. from anybody who raised a question, um, there was vitriol levelled at them Mm -hmm. by the HSE. Well, what it was a case of, Joanne, the experience I felt was that, and this was a personal view, and I'm not taking any uh, taking on any individual, was when you raised a question, the idea that we might have forgotten more about our children than anybody at the top table will ever know, that was resented. It was. It was. And it was, that was very palpable out there. And those meetings really brought out the dichotomy between people sitting behind desks, service providers and, you know, uh, pen-pushing bureaucrats and the reality of both parents and uh, children or young adults or whatever uh, with disabilities um, and uh, anybody working uh, on the ground in the services. That, that dichotomy was very much in evidence. But they had planning, they planned it, they ran the test programs around the country, um, and yet... None of it worked. When it, not, well, there, were, there was a lot of controversy. They'll tell you if they worked, but there was a lot of undertones that they didn't work, and I, I personally met people that they didn't work. But when it came to actually progressing it through and pushing it through, what they did was they did it during lockdown. They picked a date in lockdown, and they said... and having had all of the experience of the, that they had to resolve the issues that were in the system, they then yeah. decided, we'll just jump over a cliff. So it was free fall. Joanne, will you wait there for a second? Yep. Uh, because while yeah. I was talking to you, uh, Cora has, has phoned us up. Uh, your lad is 17, Cora. That's right, Sam, PJ, yeah. He's and you're having, you're having some difficulties? Terrible difficulties, really, because uh, since it's just when she said his age really resounded with me because up to now, when he was not to six, we had services. But once he hit secondary school, we sent him to Deer Park. And where they were very good and all of that, they weren't really meeting his emotional challenges and educational challenges. So we sent him across to Co Foundation up to Skull Bernadette, which have been brilliant since third, third year. But during lockdown and all of that, his emotional needs changed for us, you know, like that when the lady said she thought she knew her son, which we did at 17, he started getting more um, outbreaks, angry outbreaks, frustration outbreaks, and started, uh, you know, maybe self-harming a small bit. And I reached out over COVID to different services like Jigsaw, and they rang my GP, and um, I got onto the headway, which has to be 18, to speak visit them. And, you know, I mean, now we're under the co-foundation umbrella. I was hoping I'd reach out for their services to help me to see a psychologist. And, you know, it's all talk because when I scratch the surface, the waiting is is as long as my arm and I can't get him in. Yeah. 
you know, and it reverted for me to go to um, private, which I couldn't get. I couldn't get. Uh, I couldn't get an appointment for him until quite recently, which I got through a, a friend of mine. But you know, I rang two neuroscientists, uh, psychologists. Not they wouldn't even put him on their list just for so that I could teach him how to stop his angry outbursts and so that he wouldn't harm himself, wouldn't harm anybody else. He's a big boy, he's getting bigger, and there's just no help out there. And it's just, as a mom, it's just so disheartening that, you know, the services can't help our son, Dara. So it's awful. I'm listening to the two of you there. I'm listening to you both, and I'm thinking how lucky... We have been with, with my six foot lad <laughs> who could play for Munster yeah. and he's as yeah. placid and quiet yeah. and happy yeah. as the day is long. Yeah. We've been so lucky. Yeah. I hear you two poor women yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and, and you can't get a service for yeah. your boys. It's, it's, it's awful. Terrible. It's so it's awful. Yeah. It's so <laughs> awful. For no reason other than time, I'm going to have to leave it, Joanne and Cora. That is the reality that's out there. So I make no apology for saying what I said before. It's about time now. We did our bit. We've done our bit. We continue to do our bit for the people of Ukraine. But it's about time now Simon Coveney realised that we need money for people like Joanne and people like Cora and their boys. And stop sending money out to somebody else's war. We've spent enough. We've done enough. We've done enough. And if you want to take it up with me, you can do so when we're back tomorrow, just after nine. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.